You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 106, Rick Casey, Charred Products. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick sits down with Rick Casey, CEO of Charred Products. Rick has a passion for wild game. Growing up in the UP of Michigan, Rick has fond memories of bringing in deer to his family garage and working together to create the amazing dishes of his yesteryears, like his grandma's potato sausage. Rick also goes into how hunting and venison has impacted the design of his products, helping them to be more effective for the hunter's kitchen. If meat means more to you than just a fuel source, then this is your episode. Settle in for a nostalgia-filled episode of... Huntivore. Well, hey, folks. Beautiful afternoon here in Michigan. Uh, it's kind of a weird setup because here are, I'm talking in April, and it's like our first 60-degree day. But the time that you're hearing this, you're hopefully going to be thinking about putting a critter down. You've got your, uh, your number one hit list, Buck. You got him pretty much pinned out. And you know what time those does are heading to that food plot. So we are here to think about after you've made that quality shot. I mean, keep, keep your game focused, but we do want to be able to step ahead and think about what we're going to do after the shot. And I thought, hey, none other than to have a man who has put his whole life around that. I'm talking with Rick Carey. He is the CEO of Chard Products. Rick Thank you so much for joining us here on this April day. Uh, you, did you crack a beer yet, or are you still in the office? You know, I saw, I, I have not cracked, I'm still in the office, but I do have beer in the fridge. Uh, you know, you guys are on fast time, so I haven't quite gotten to my beer yet, but uh, <laughs> my IPA is coming soon. 
Oh, good deal, good deal. Yeah, we had a we had quite the day at school today. You know, we're wrapping up. It's right after spring break, and the kids are just they're ready to be done. So yeah, after a long effort, it's always nice to crack at least one. You know, to get you back in the mood. Yeah. But uh, we're joining you today, and we're talking about this. This is your baby. This is a company you've created. Tell us a little bit about Chard Products. Sure. Uh, you know, first I'll start with the name. Um, I get a lot of different pronunciations of it, but once you know where it comes from, it's a little easier. So my full name is Richard Carey and Chard is last part Richard. And my dad was Richard Carey Sr. Uh, so we had to you know, somehow differentiate it. So uh, within my family, I've always gone by Chard or Chardy. Uh, and you know, it's kind of funny when you start a company, like the biggest thing is trying to find a website and chard products was available. So I was like, that's it. And, you know, I, I, I've been an entrepreneur for years and, uh, you know, it seems like every company I would start, I'd, you know, I'd call it chard something or other. And, uh, I used to restore old Volkswagen, uh, campers by, but, you know, I, I had a vintage carburetor restoration business, which was like chards carbs. And so like, it became, it was just like a natural extension of it. And it kind of works with, uh, grilling and outdoor cooking. So it's like, Hey, that, that name works really well, but yeah, you're right. I, kind of threw my whole life into it. Uh, this is what I grew up doing. Uh, and I'm actually an attorney by trade. I was general counsel for the company. And uh, when I joined the company, it's actually the Metalwork Corporation. Uh, I joined the company and I thought, yeah, after a couple of months of being there, I was like, you know, these guys really don't need me. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm like, I was playing solitaire at work and I'm like, yeah, this isn't working. This isn't me. And I went and I basically went to the president of the company. I said, look, I will do any work you have out there. I'll do product development. I'll do overseas sourcing, anything to just, you know, just how I, I want to go make stuff and figure this out. And they were more than happy to give me more work. So I started getting into it. And I really, um, I, it started with Cabela's. I started working with those guys and I went out and I, you know, I was already selling them. We had a line called open country, which was uh, a matter of fact, some of the older folks on your, uh, on your listening group might remember we had open country camp where it's been around since like the forties and uh, used to be made by Miro. So we'd go out and we sold a Cabela since they were a fly fishing catalog store. And uh, so I would go out and visit those guys. And I talked about how I grew up in the UP of Michigan and game processing. And at the time it was like 2005 and CWD was becoming a big deal. Uh, it was really migrating from Colorado to the Midwest. And it was beginning, you know, there's kind of a twofold thing that was happening. It was beginning to shut down the mom pa processors. Uh, you know, every town had like a meat market. And a lot of those guys were getting shut down because of CWD. It was too much to go from processing beef to processing venison for a few weeks. And it was getting harder for guys to just drop their deer off somewhere. And uh, with that, we were seeing an opportunity because the only alternative was to go buy, you know, a, a commercial grade uh, equipment that, you know, maybe you bought it in an auction for a restaurant and you shared it with five guys. We were like, look, how come nobody's out there making this stuff? So I worked with those guys to really develop the first game processing equipment. And then I used my own experience growing up in the UP again of just saying, hey, you know, we did this. We use a meat tenderizer, uh, the food dehydrator to make jerky out of your venison. Um, you know, we as simple as vacuum seal bags and the fact that you can't write on them, we developed a stamping set that used like solvent based ink to be able to do it. Cause it was like, I was vacuum sealing my meat one time and it wasn't working and I could, yeah, everything I put on there would get smeared and I couldn't read it out of the freezer. So I'm like, ah, I can develop something better than that. So we took those life experiences and began developing these products. And actually I went and started my own company along the way. And that became charred products. And we did a lot more development of, of, you know, where we saw shortcomings within that industry, uh, we would develop products around it. 
And that's one of the things, just our brand in general about chart and why I like doing these, you know, these, these different interviews is we're authentic. Like, like I use all the equipment I'm out there hunting where, you know, other guys kind of get into it and they're like, Hey, it'd be fun if we just extended our product line to hit the outdoor guys. Yeah, it's great. But if you don't do it, then your product is lacking in some areas because you don't fundamentally understand how we use it. And one good example of that was grinders. I developed a lot of grinders throughout the years and grinders really came, Europe was using grinders quite a bit, but they're grinding pre-processed meat. They're doing mostly lamb or beef. You start using venison, elk, antelope, and that, that meat's a lot tougher. It's just, you know, it, it's wild game. So it's just a lot tougher. It typically has a silver skin on it. If you're not, you know, if you don't get it all off and every grinder we would develop or you know, bring over that was already developed, it was breaking instantly. So we immediately looked at that and said, look, we've got to develop more metal gears, you know, different gearing ratios. And we started saying, you can't just slap a label on it, and bring it to market. You have to understand how these guys are using it and then design you know, around the use. And that's what we did. And our whole product line is like that. That's awesome. Because yes, I have, you know, I, I'm a new guy to this whole idea of hunting. I, you know, 2010, I finally said, I'm, I'm sick of going um, to the store all the time. I want to start getting stuff local. I knew farmers in the area for my domestic stuff. And I, you know, I had my buddies get me involved with hunting and putting down that animal. And my first, well, I, I cheated and I was using uh, our farm grinder uh, my first time. And that was, it takes longer to clean the machine than it does to actually run all your venison through. So I was definitely cheating. But I picked up a attachment for a KitchenAid. And I'm thinking like a guy nowadays, he's going to pick up one of those, you know, he gets his first deer, he wants to gr do some grinding, and he's going to find like, man, I almost burnt the motor out on yep. that poor KitchenAid because it just, it, it is a fun little feature, but at the same time, it's, you know, it's like the scissors on a Swiss Army knife. Like, yeah, they're sharp, but he ain't going to get much anywhere out with those. So yeah. it's fun to see that you're, you're thinking about the inner workings. And so that was kind of like your baby was developing that. Yeah. And honestly, my first development was the grinder and, and you, know, you talk about the KitchenAid and it was sort of the same thing. Again, it was sort of designed for doing light work, you know, Hey, you want to grind up a little piece here, you know, you know, maybe you know, a pound or so of meat and grind it quick. The kitchen, I, I have a KitchenAid, use it a ton for, you know, make you know, bread and pizzas and stuff like that. Love it. But for grinding, it's, you know, it, just throwing an attachment on it doesn't do it. So like the first grinder, I really developed from the bottom up. And one of the things I really didn't like uh, was that every time you push down on a grinder, if it wasn't a commercial grinder with heavy weight in the back, you would tip forward when you use the pusher to push down on it. So I'm like, all right, let's move the feet forward. We'll make an arch because I always use a stainless steel bowl underneath it. And now when I push down, I push down over all four feet. And it's not tipping every time I'm, you know, it was amazing that nobody had thought about that. I'm like, all you got to do is bring the feet out to do that. Or like, I'm like most guys, I over, you know, I basically overtax it and it, it would burn out. And so I'm like, okay, well just let's put a thermal reset switch in rather than what they call a TCO, which just opens up on heat and then it's junk. So we put a thermal reset on there because if you overheat it, let it cool off, push the button on the bottom, starts again. You brought up a really good point too, but just it takes more time to clean it than it does to use it. Uh, so we designed things like dishwasher safe accessories. We you know, looked at things that, that would come apart, totally apart so you could clean them very easily because I had the same issue. Every time I'd use it, I'd be like, yeah, that's great. I ground up all my meat in 20 minutes and it takes me a half an hour to clean it. 
uh, you know, built-in cord storage so that you can sit in your pantry and just, it doesn't take a bunch, you know, it's not falling all over the place. That came literally from me walking in my pantry one day, just saying, I can't keep this stuff in my pantry. I got to put it downstairs. And then when I put it downstairs, I didn't use it. Yeah. So I was like, all right, so I'm the average consumer and how am I going to use it? I want to have cord storage on it. So if you look at my FG1000, cord storage on the bottom, thermal reset, feet forward, big hopper, number 12 grinding head, stainless steel blades, because, you know, the last thing you wanted to have is for them to rust when you're done. So like all these things, you know, it's funny, like I can look at it and say, I remember when we developed that, 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 and that. All of them came from like, hey, when I use it, this is what I find and this is what I like. And those things were, were huge for us. But again, it comes back to the idea of like, we just didn't slap a label on it. We did product development through actual testing and use and how we would use them, knowing that we're the basic average consumer because we do it too. Uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, the, you hit a couple of areas there that I thought, yeah, you're right in the money. That's exactly how we, you know, how we came along. And it, it makes me feel good knowing that you are thinking of sportsmen when it comes to this whole product line. You're thinking of people that are taking on this responsibility of, you know what, I want to, I want to do this myself. Yes, point you mentioned earlier, CWD is an issue, and that has shut down a lot of mom and pop shops. And I think yeah. it's even put a worry in guys who traditionally have gone to processors. You know, there's a there's an element that it's it's behind a curtain that you know it goes into the cooler and magically I pick it up in two weeks. There's a convenience, but there's also that it it brings a little bit of angst, a little bit for a little bit of anxiety for the average guy that's going in there. Yeah, growing well, up actually, in the, well, I was just going to continue on. Growing up in the UP, though, you were saying like, yeah, you got these mom and pop shops, but a lot of times, like, this is something you guys had to take care of when it came to bringing down animals as a family. It was more along the lines of, hey, we we come over Black Friday isn't about going shopping. Black Friday is about getting the grinder out. That that was always our family tradition. You'd have you know Thanksgiving Day. Usually we'd have Thanksgiving dinner a little bit early. We would do drives in the afternoon because you, you know November fifteenth is always opener, right? So you always have, have the opener. Um, everybody posted up for the opener, and you know you, did, you, you didn't start driving until at least the second week. Um, we'd hit that second. We start we drive after Thanksgiving dinner. It was always like you know, a good time to go walk. And uh, we'd usually you know, drop a few. That was usually, we had nuisance tags from our potato farm. So we usually drop a few does. You should try to you know, identify uh, yearling does and, and drop those. And then you know, Black Friday was the day that we got all the equipment out. And you know, my grandmother would be at one end basically tasting the, uh, we'd made potato sauce is what we made a lot of. She'd be tasting it in the raw, making sure the flavoring was just right. My grandfather was at the other end with sharpening the knives and a belt sander, make sure the knife stayed sharp. And then all of us in the middle were like, you know, basically needle nose pliers and buck knives trying to get silver skin off um you know it was just a sole assembly line of a family and it was funny because like everybody around me did the same thing it wasn't like it was just us and then you know you go away to college you, you know leave home and then you start talking to folks even got other guys kind of gravitate to people who are like you and and like oh yeah we just drop our deer off and i'm like oh i didn't even know you could do that <laughs> you know like I mean, I was wait like, what we, there's a magic wand <laughs> exactly like how oh, that's interesting i didn't even know you could do it but you know we, we would do something like that but you know you hit another point earlier i just want to maybe circle back to just even on, on processors the one thing that you know it, it, you know i think that you hit a couple of points on this i really liked is that ethical kill that that you know you take that good shot get that good heart shot, lung shot that you just, you know, you drop that animal right away. Um, you're not, tra you're not tracking for a long way and you don't have a lot of adrenaline buildup. If you have a lot of adrenaline buildup after the shot or God for you get a gut shot. Um, you know, lots of, you know, we kind of joke around like, Hey, 
that's a hamburger deer. Um, you know, it's basically, you're not going to save anything out of that deer, maybe some back straps. That's about it. Uh, because that adrenaline has gotten so into the system, they didn't die right away. And that meat becomes tough, gamey. It's just, it, it's difficult. So, you know, if you get a good shot and, you know, you're, you're practicing ethical hunting shots, um, you know, you want that, you want that deer meat to be your meat and a hamburger typically now not, this is not every processor, but a lot of processors will be like, all right, let's weigh up what you're going to have for hamburger meat here. And, you know, we weigh it out. It's you know, 40 pounds worth of hamburger meat. You're going to get 40 pounds worth of hamburger meat at the end, but they're not cleaning out the grinder when they're done with yours. They're, they're, they're grinding up everybody's and they're giving you 40 pounds of it. So your hamburger, it could be, could be yours. So it could be a mix of yours and somebody else's, or quite frankly, a lot of times it's just totally somebody else's. So if you're good about getting your, you know, get your field dressing done, getting it chilled off right away, you know, nice, clean, you know, field dress, you do all these steps to make sure that you have the best possible meat. Now, you know, once you give that away, it's really hard to know that you're getting back exactly what you put in, especially when it comes to the hamburger side of things. Um, that So yeah, yeah, you're probably getting your back straps, and your loins back that are yours, but the hamburger side, not so much all the time. So I became a big fan of doing it myself because if I'm going to spend the time, you know, pre-hunting, I'm out there this time of year, just checking out my does and checking out my, you know, you know, what, you know, what's being, you know, where they're hurting up right now, right. Or they have been, I'm checking out what's going on. I'm checking my game. I keep my game cameras out all year. Um, you know, then I'm going through the summer with my food plots. I'm getting, I'm doing all the work to get all that done, including the pre-hunting in the fall, making sure I know what my patterns are. I get my ethical shot in. I'm getting up early. I'm doing my, I'm doing all the hunting that I need to be able to do. You've gone this far, like now close the loop. Like the, and the loop is making sure that, you know, you feel dressed, right. You get chilled down right away and then you process it. And I'm a control guy. I like keeping control of myself. I like knowing I can do it myself. And so therefore I do the whole process myself, including the cooking of it at the end and the eating of it, having that closed loop, knowing that it's, you know, I know those deer when they're born, I'm watching, you know, how many twins do I have out this year? Do I have triplets? You know, I'm watching all that all the way through. I'm usually identifying the deer I'm going to take early on. And, you know, and I, you know, I've got a big enough family. I'm usually, I'm, I'm usually not the kids taking the, you know, the spikes and the forks and I'm looking for something that's got, you know, place to hang a bunch of hats on. Um, you know, so like, you know, th th that, that part of it, I just feel like a lot of guys, you know, they do all that work. And to me, the whole experience, you asked me earlier on about, you know, what is meat for me? For me, it's the experience. It's the memories of being with my grandparents, my parents. It's what I'm sharing with my kids. And that, isn't just the kill. It isn't just going out and hunting. It's that whole process that ties you into the woods, that ties you into the system, reminds you that you're just a part of the cog, right? You're just part of this. And yeah, you're the apex predator and that's kind of a fun place to be. But at the end of the day, it's that whole experience, the memories, even the flavors of how you cook. Again, we make potato sausage. That potato sausage to me is like, you know, last meal, I'd have potato sausage. I mean, it, because it would bring back so many great memories for me. To me, that's what, you know, whether it be hunting or the processing or gathering together as a family, those are the things that are really important to me. And, and, and that's another reason why I do this, because I, I feel like I was blessed with a lot of the background to be able to do it. I'm blessed with the ability to have a company that can do it. And I think it does benefit a lot of people. And that self-sufficiency, as we've talked about, like, especially COVID, it reminded us of just how delicate the whole thing is. And having that ability to know you can do it yourself gives you the confidence when these bad things do happen and know that, hey, I'm going to be okay. It takes a little of the anxiety away, knowing that, hey, I don't have to go do this right now, but it sure is nice to know I can. Closing the loop. That that phrase is sticking with me right now, Rick. That 
as as you put it too, like you go through all the effort. Why on the last hundred yards? Why on the last mile do you just push it off to someone else when you know it? It is you know you may not you may struggle for the first bit. If you know as somebody starting out, you're gonna you know you're gonna cut up a shoulder the wrong way. At least in your mind, you're gonna watch a heck of a lot of YouTube videos on how did this guy do it, and yep. you're gonna have some of those stakes. That you're just going to put a big question mark because you forgot what part of the deer that was. And those end up, you know what, question marks sometimes, freezer treasure sometimes turns out way better than what you thought. But with that, that's stuff you talk about. That's stuff that you remember. You know, I've, I've never had a potato sausage, but I'm sure like, man, you could probably smell that from the other side of the house as soon as that hits the pan and how that just brings that all up. That is an, I... I admire. In fact, I think that's very in tune with my own perspective. And like you were talking with the sustainability, that things are totally, you know, things seem to be getting back on track, but how easy they can derail. And we end up in a spot where, yeah, well, if I want meat, then I better have acquired it myself already because it's gone. Honestly, I'm looking at things too and looking at, you know, We've gone through a pandemic. We've got, you know, we, we've gone through these different things. The only thing we haven't gone through yet is basically some sort of food shortage. And, you know, we're not that far away. That happens in a cycle. It's going to happen eventually, hopefully not for a long time. But again, you know, you could suffer from the anxieties of just the what is, but I, I'm, I'm an action taker. So I'm like, you know, all right, I'm going to make sure I know how to do it. And you brought up YouTube, which I think is just a fan. If used properly, it's phenomenal. Because you can go out there and you are just not going to screw up cutting up your deer. You're just not. Like, I mean, you just, yeah, you might not do it the best way. You might cut a tenderloin the right way or leave some meat back in there. But who cares? Like, you're still going to be able to go back in and get it. It's still going to cook up just fine. It might not be as pretty as it would be after your fifth or sixth one. But for guys who have never done it before, I'm just telling you right now, as long as, long as you chill that meat right away, and, you know, you get a field dressed right away. That's the most important thing. After that, it's just muscle groups. And quite frankly, once you skin a deer, you start looking at it logically, you start peeling off the muscle groups. It's pretty darn intuitive. Um, and it can be a lot of fun. I mean, it really can be, again, we always did it. Like you, we, we, well, I call them debarking. We debark a beer deer while they're still warm. Only because man, I did so many of them when they're frozen and it's just like such a pain in the butt. And like, I've never really tasted the difference on aging a deer in a tree. So I was like, let's, let's debark them right away. Uh, but then, you know, it's almost always two guys on a deer. So it'd be my uncle or my dad and you, you know, one's on one side, one's on the other and you're BSing and talking. And those are, you know, again, you're doing something together that has meaning and, and provides for the family. Those are some of my best memories. And, you know, you're doing it with your kid or again, you're doing it with your brother. Those are times of just, I don't know. I think we're built for that and we've lost some of that. And those are fun things to get back into. A lot of times hunting itself, unless you're taking your kids out, is a solitary type of event, unless you have a, a guide. Most of the time it's a pretty solitary thing. That's fine. I enjoy that part of it. Um, but the processing, the cooking, that can be family events. And that's how I remember it. And to me, that's that's the fun part is, yeah, there might be, it's kind of like baseball, right? You know, there's a solo part of it and there's a team part of it. And I think hunting can be much the same way. Fishing can be the much the same way. But those things that provide food and substance for your family, it gets into a primal aspect of it, of just, you know, it gives me personally a lot of confidence to go out and do whatever I have to do next in life, knowing that those base things are taken care of and I have the skill set to do it. 
sticking down on Sentimental uh, Avenue here, talk to me about your first animal that you brought down. What was that like? What was that experience? Yeah, it's a, you know, that's a really great question. Um, I, I think everybody remembers their first kill. My first kill was the... Uh, what was a chipmunk in my grandparents' garden with a pellet gun? I can remember it like it was yesterday, probably like you know, six years old. And I remember my grandfather being very excited for me for doing that. But you know, it's that moment where it's all fun. Taking a life is is something that it it, it sticks with you and it should. Um, and then you you reconcile six or seven years old when we were doing that. It sort of reconciles. You're like, all right, this is who I am. This is what it is. And and I will say that I think everybody should remember the first time they do that. And then when we get into major game, I remember my uh, my first deer. I was with I, I we as kids we all had to hunt with my grandfather and his wine, and um, yeah, he'd always kind of take you through the first one. It was yeah, the little nubby buck, and shot that. And I think I, I mean I think it was rattling on the you know on the on the wood that was the flip up window that we had in his blind because I was so nervous. It was probably like a thirty yard shot, and I yeah I, I'm sure I hit him broadside, but it, it was a, a good clean kill. That was my first one. I remember him being so excited for me and just, you know, I don't know about you, but some of those really, really strong memories are almost like, you know, vivid color in your memory. That for me was that I remember the white snow, which it was just a moment of a dusting that deer, the, you know, just, it was, you know, the brown fur. I remember everything about that moment. And I was, oh, I was pretty young at the time. I was probably 12 or so, maybe 11. Uh, so it was a pretty, you know, pretty early on process for me, but that was uh, an amazing time and a great memory. And, you know, I don't remember, honestly, I don't remember the kill so much that I remember the time with my grandfather that sitting there and trying to be quiet um, for, you know, for three hours when you're that age was so hard. It was just, you know, and if you moved your butt just a little bit and back then it was probably like the late seventies, early eighties, my, you know, the material we had would make tons of noise when you move in the deer blind and he'd look at you that dirty look of like, be quiet. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like it was just awesome, awesome memories, but I remember the camaraderie more than I remember the kills. Uh, but quite frankly, that uh, that part in any of my hunting, that's what I remember. I remember the people that I'm with and I remember the uh, just the, 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 the fun you have together when somebody, whether it's you or somebody else, gets something. I think anybody who hunts can identify with that. So again, back to fishing. Same thing with fishing. Somebody gets that big walleye, somebody hits that big northern. Uh, quite frankly, it's exciting for you to be in the boat with that person. Yeah, you want it to be you, but it's exciting to be there and you're excited for that person. It's one of those things that I think it's, it's a sport where you are so excited about the next guy being able to do just as well as you want to do. And hunting has that aspect to it. Uh, so yeah, at, at least I hope that answered your question, but that was kind of my memory of my first, the first deer at least. Gotcha. No, you hit the nail right on the head and all those good feels that you get from it. I liked also where you said in, in somebody getting the deer, somebody getting the big walleye, pulling the Northern into the boat that, we have, I mean, there's kind of like this, I don't know, shade being thrown at the grip and grin because it's one guy holding the animal. But I think we forget about the guy that's grinning just as big that's mm -hmm. holding the camera. It's holding that, the camera, right. That there is part of that moment as well. I see, you know, grip and grins that I've taken for my buds that, you know, at, you know, we take the picture and now the work begins to pull it out. Like I still see that picture. And I, I remember being a part of that, even though I'm not even anywhere in the photo, I, it, yeah, the whole thing comes back. So it's fun to go to somebody's house and see those put up on the wall. Cause yeah, you get to share that as well. It is. And 
those are the most, I, I, I will say that I have a really hard time smiling if I'm not really happy. And my best smiles come from stuff like that, you know. I think I'm usually laughing because they're like, hold it closer to the camera. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Helps if you got long arms, you know. Right, right. Yeah. You can just move back a little bit. But yeah, no, I, I think those, you know, it's fun today. You know, we capture those moments a little bit better than we did, you know, again, when I was a kid. I, mean, I don't think I have any pictures of my first deer or anything like that, but I sure would like one, you know. So, you know, the evidence of technology has both good and bad aspects to, to it. But the idea that we're capturing those moments a lot easier, like when my first, when my kids got their first year, you know, I've got those, can I got those pictures and, you know, they come up on memories and stuff like that. And I, I love that aspect of it because it does remind you to be thankful for it and, the, and, and just relive the moment is so much fun. Amen. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about uh, cell cameras. You know, there's, there's something you're too, you're too close, but if I have a meat probe, that can hook to my phone somehow i'm okay with that <laughs> it, it's funny and it, it you know again i i'm like three hours from my camp so the, the cell camera thing is kind of nice i got a moose at my camp right now so like Ooh. i'm just trying I, I, and i just want to see the moose right i've got moose and wolf and you know they kind of the wolf kind of decimated my deer population but at the same time it's like it sure is fun to see it you know it's fun to see what's going on and yeah, I do like that aspect of it. Uh, the, the whole advent of game cameras was so different. Like I, I took my my middle son out this fall and said, look, we're going to learn some stuff without technology. I was like, all right, so we're going to do some tracking. And we went through, we tracked some rabbits, tracked some deer. Uh, we set snares. I'm like, this is how you set snares. And this is, you know, we use a compass, no GPS. I'm like, all right, we're going to do some reconnoitering. We're going to, you know, go here, had a map. Like, we're going to learn how to do this stuff and do it. And I'm like, it's like, well, yeah, but can't you just sign on your phone? I'm like, how often is your phone went dead? <laughs> like, this compass will never go dead. And, you know, those types of skills, they can be complementary, but you can't rely on technology for 100%. I do, I do see that happening quite a bit where even myself, where I'm like, I'm looking so much at my technology, paying attention, you know, I'm not paying attention to listening. So I intentionally try not to go out in the woods without my, I try not to go with my phone. It's funny because not having a phone nowadays is sort of a safety issue. And you start thinking about it. I'm like, having a phone is a nice thing from a safety aspect. But man, I do notice that I'm not as aware. I'm not aware of my surroundings. And if I could just share a quick story with you, I got my, my 10 year old daughter, and, and all my kids went through this. I know you've got younger kids too. They sort of go that, that phase where they are not, they're not situationally aware. This, and, and I, I swear <laughs> I'm sorry for blowing up because he said that's been right? our week. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you can totally identify with this. And what I, one of the things I really found was taking him out in the woods without technology really, really helps with that. Um, you know, the, it's almost like sensory overload because they're so used to focusing on a screen or, you know, just focusing right here instead of, you know, all around you or listening to what the sounds are around you, or you, you can hear, you know, leaves, you know, moving or you know, branch breaking. And all of a sudden they do that. And I've noticed that with my two boys who are a little bit older, my daughter, that that was really, that, that really assisted them in helping them become more aware of their surroundings. Obviously maturing with age helps with that, but I've started taking my daughter out. We made maple syrup about three weeks ago, went up to the, went up to camp, made maple syrup. And I would, I'd take her out and I'd have, I'm like, you hear that? Or you hear the, you know, the birds are coming back. You know, you can start hearing the birds chirping a little bit more. And yes, she'd hear that. And like, yeah, if you're looking at your tablet, you wouldn't hear that stuff. Uh, so it just, I find too, just that whole experience, especially when shared with family and the kids, 
can help kind of counter some of the negative parts of technology that are out there. And you know, like I said, the, the, the kill, the hunt, they're all part of a circle back to closing that loop. They're all part of something. But if all you go out and do is pull the trigger, you're missing a big part of it. Yeah, that that pre-hunt, the, the you know, I, I, my, I, my kids drive the tractor with me. We get the, you know, get the food plots in. All that stuff is just a part of a process, including eating venison throughout the winter, right? I mean, we make jerky, we make venison stew. We try different, you know, my profession, I'm trying different recipes all the time. And, you know, just, I'll do a, you know, a, a podcast with you and you know, we'll talk about a recipe offline. I'll be like, oh, send that over. We'll make that on Saturday. You know, just that's for me, again, the fun part of this is that you, you get to make it a part of the lifestyle. And it's a really healthy lifestyle, especially balancing out what's going on today. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes. And use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your key. Let's get into some technical stuff here. So we've, in our little scenario here, let's walk through, let's give ourselves a little bit of a refresher, review on kind of how I'm going to take care of this animal after it's down. So in our scenario, we've made that beautiful shot. And it's cold enough where we don't need extra refrigeration. Um, you know, it's one of those November days over there in Wisconsin or even up in the UP here in Michigan where we get to field dressing the deer. Talk to me a little bit about your process on you, uh, on you field dressing. Is it, you know, are you using one knife? Or are you trying to spread the rib cage? Are you a guy that goes in and are you saving a lot from that fifth quarter or is it just get it all out and let the coyotes eat? Yeah. I, I kind of smile at this because uh, I've had a lot of, lot of conversations right now about organ meat. Um, and I'm just personally not a big organ meat guy. Um, yeah, it probably just part of how I grew up, but you know, I have friends of mine who love heart and liver. Um, I, Again, I just wasn't like, and I, I'm going to blame my grandma for this because like she just didn't, had nothing to do with liver or hearts. And so therefore I didn't grow up eating it. Um, so yeah, typically for me, field dressing usually comes along with, um, you know, to me, the biggest things are, I don't use a gut hook, although I think they're a really nice device. Uh, they really help from not nicking the guts. Because if, if you didn't get a gut shot, keeping those guts intact is A number one. Yeah, you just don't want that contamination if you can help it. So what I'll do, um, I usually get, I've got two knives. I've got more of my buck knife, which is your typical real, you know, real thin blade buck knife. 
I'll get in usually right by the pelvic bone, get started there. And I'll bring my hand, I'll get a cut going in there enough that I get my hand in. And I usually get on the screen here. I usually get my hand like that, get my knife like this. And I'm following myself up like that. So I'm keeping my hand between the intestines and the guts, making sure that I'm not poking those. Mm-hmm. That to me is number one. So once I get that up, I'll get that up to the, you know, to the sternum right here. I'll, I'll bring it all the way up. Me personally, because yeah, again, I know I talked about a lot about my grandfather, but he and I hunted a lot together. He used to do it with a buck knife and he would never get more bloody than his, like, like, you know, just above his, his, his wrist. I mean, I'm bloody up to my shoulder because I'm reaching up for the larynx, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm up there with a knife trying to get as far up in the larynx like I can. Um, yes, for me, that's, that's what I do. I usually go up, get the larynx, pull it out. Um, reaming, uh, you know, reaming the buttholes is a big deal. Like just how you do that, take your time doing a nice thin knife is really, really good for that. But you get that larynx, you get that. And then I usually use my hands for everything else. I'm doing the separation of the organs with my hands up in there. And then I'm usually pulling out again, depends on where you get the shot. If you get a longest shot, usually dealing with a little bit of mess up there, but honestly, usually larynx is in place. I get up as far as I can, you know, it's a pretty simple deal. Basically the button larynx, you know, you get those two things going, you can basically pull everything back out. Um, that's what I do. Um, I, I will put the liver out. Um, I personally, when it's a male, I always hang, I always hang the genitals up afterwards. And that's, I don't know if a lot of guys do that, but like I was taught that was a number one in case the game warden comes along, you show them the gender of the deer hanging in the tree. Um, so I always, I've, I've just kind of grown up doing that. So, you know, you get that all cleaned up. Um, the big thing for me is I usually carry um, water with me in my blind and I will then immediately rinse out before things freeze up, uh, especially where I split the pelvis. I'll get any of that. So if there's anything contamination wise, I'm getting that cleaned out. I'm telling you what, like the number one thing is field dressing and, and doing it well. Um, a lot of YouTube videos out there that are great, but there's no substitution for just getting out there and doing it. Uh, but once I've got that, I usually, again, we're talking about, you know, UP is usually pretty cold. I'm usually down in the teens or twenties. Um, but I'll still like take a stick and open up that belly flap and open up, let that cold air get in there and let that inner part of that body get cooled off right away. Mm-hmm. Um, usually as soon as I get that all opened up, I'll roll it over and drain the blood. I don't save blood. I know guys do for, you know, for a lot of reasons. Um, I don't, uh, for one thing, I just don't, I, the venison blood's pretty gamey. So if you're going to make any sort of uh, putting out or anything like that. I'm just not a fan of it, but it's not to say you couldn't do it. And quite frankly, if I were hungry, I would keep it all. Yeah. Uh, but you know, blessed with, uh, you know, with, with, with lots of deer. So it's a, it's a little easier process. Um, so I usually, you know, that I've got wolves and coyotes that, that gut piles gone by that evening. Um, so, you know, if I leave it out, it's, it's gone pretty quick. Um, but a lot of guys love, love that organ meat and, uh, you know, and, and I've had a lot of conversations about it. I think if you've not tried it before, you should, uh, especially heart heart is a really, really good muscle to try, um, you know, liver, uh, you know, it's a little stronger and, whether or not you like that is a big question. As long as we're on the topic, I'll just talk about processing too. If you've had venison before and you're like, oh, that's really gamey. Um, I will I will tell you just a couple of tricks of the trade to, to minimize that effect. For one thing, a lot of that depends on where you're hunting. Like for me in the UP, potatoes and cedar swamps, man. So like the deer have a certain taste because of that. You get down to Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, you're going to be corn finished deer because by the time that season comes around, they're in the cornfields and they're either eating right off the stalks or they're eating what's on the ground after the harvest. That's going to be a nice flavorful deer with good, you know, the fat's going to have a good flavor to it. 
up by us, I don't take any fat. I make sure I get all the fat off. And the other thing that really is a bugger is silver skin. Silver skin itself has a huge game flavor to it, and it's a pain in the butt. But if you use a needle nose plier, or I've even used forceps before, a little curved forceps I use for fishing and fly tying, I'll grab those and just pick that silver skin up, get that knife in there. And while I'm on the topic, a sharp knife is the most important thing. Learn how to hand sharpen a knife uh, because fur dulls knives so quickly. And the knife that you field dress with shouldn't be the knife that you process with. It can be, make sure it's nice and clean. But quite frankly, it's two different knives. Yeah. Um, and none of them are all that expensive. You, you know, I think that makes a knife expensive is usually a handle. Um, you know, if you go to Damascus Steel, sure. But I mean, for the most part, you know, getting a good knife and keeping an edge on that is absolutely critical. But getting in there with that silver skin, get that silver skin out. And again, I don't like the, the sinew or the fat. I usually, I do keep it. And I usually hang it up in a bag for birds outside of camp. So I watch the birds, the chickadees come in and eat it. That's kind of a secondary fun thing for me to do. Uh, but usually I don't keep any of it. And when I make my hamburger, I usually do a two to one ratio, sometimes a three to one ratio of uh, pork to, uh, to venison. And then if I'm, I use pork personally, I use pork if I'm making hamburger, uh, but there are times like if I'm making jerky, if I'm going to do like a ground meat jerky, I use beef mixture for that. You got to have some fat to be able to do that. So I want to get that fat content up. I use an 80, 20 beef grind and I'll put that in like that. And I'll just grind it right through with my hamburger and I'll make that into jerky. Gotcha. That's for your, your ground jerky that you're shooting out of the gun at that point. Yes. Yeah. If you're doing out a gun and, you know, I make dehydrators. I've probably made more jerky than any other human being out there in my life. Just, you know, it's like, it's, you know, I make a ton of jerky. I go back and forth. I like both. Um, right now I happen to like whole meat jerky better. Uh, I got a cracked pepper and garlic. I really like the cracked pepper and garlic. Uh, I'll marinate for 48 hours. I'll get a good marinade. And I'll, that's another thing too. We're going to go into this for a little bit. Uh, if you're going to use a whole meat jerky, make sure you marinate with the salt cure uh, for a full 48 hours. It's really important to make sure the bacteria doesn't have any growth ability for it. It's a, it's a sodium nitrite that basically inhibits the growth of any bacteria. Um, and as bad as it sounds, what it really is is salt. But it, 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 you got to get it penetrated into the meat so you don't have any bacteria growth, your shelf stable. So let that go for 48 hours. But hey, it's a Sunday night and you want to make some jerky for the kids this week. Ground meat jerky is great. I can mix that up. I can put extruded on my, with my shooter out onto my dehydrator trays and I let it go. And by, you know, later on that night, it's jerky. It takes me all of prep work. I can do, I can do 10 pounds of jerky on my dehydrator in less than 20 minutes. You know, it dry. Yeah, I've got to dry it. But then my dehydrator trays, I throw in the dishwasher next morning. It's super easy. But when I make it, I, you know, I've got 30 tray dehydrators. So I usually make a ton at a time, vacuum seal them up and, you know, give half of them away to friends and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, but I, I kind of go back and forth on which one I like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, like you said, I'm in the whole muscle, uh, category. Um, not that I, you know, I, I have a buddy who's big into what I call the cat turds. Cause I love to just give him a hard time, but that, that ground. Yeah. It's, I, it's almost like a chew stick to me. It's more along the lines of like a snack stick, um, in that point, but I'm really into the chewiness of it. You know, I don't, it's almost like I, I put a little bit in and I'm going to chew it and almost like a, you know, some of the dip you just put in your yep. your lower lip and you end up sucking on that for a while. So yeah, when you have your cracked pepper garlic, like I'm getting that for the next 20 minutes on just that little piece. Um, 
kind of extends the life of it for a little bit. But yeah, at the same time, it's not as filling just because, yeah, you're, you know, you've just nibbling on that little bit. Uh, and I'll tell you another little trick on that. If you look at when, you know, most of your whole meat, all your whole meat has a grain pattern to it. If you do your strips so that the grain pattern is perpendicular to your strip, um, when you bite it off, it'll bite off a little bit easier. And it still has that chewiness in your mouth when you're doing that, mm-hmm. but you're not, you know, trying to rip it apart in your mouth like that. The other thing, advice I give people make a jerky is that if you don't need it to be shelf stable or you're willing to put it in the refrigerator, do it a little less. Like you don't have to dry it all the way. Leave some moisture in there. That moisture will give you a lot of flavor. I personally like my jerky like right off the dehydrator or my smoker. But if you leave a little bit of that moisture in there and you vacuum seal it, keeping your fridge or freezer, it has a little bit more flavor to it. But if you're going out camping, you're going to be you know in a boat for a couple of days, you know, dry it really, really well, be shelf stable, you won't have any problems. You know, the only problems you're really going to get at that point are going to be mold problems with the moisture. Um, but quite frankly, the flavor comes through a lot more with a little bit of moisture in it. And your, your kind of cat turd comment makes me realize he's not using enough fat content. That's what happens, especially with venison. If you're doing ground meat venison, you got to add something with fat content to it, or it'll just basically when it shrinks, it'll just shrivel up and become cat turds. So if you put that 80-20 mix in or just mix in uh, beef fat with it and you need a little bit. Uh, you know, ideally is like 90, 10, um, is your kind of ideal ratio for making quick jerky. Um, and then you can also turn that, you know, to make sure your dehydrator is at about 160 degrees. Um, we sell dehydrators that basically have on off switches, ones that have thermostats. If it has an on off switch it's automatically 160, 165. Um, but if it has a thermostat, just make sure that thermostat's at that 160 range. And I always tell people to like, if you're making jerky, it's cured meat, it's not cooked. So we, and I'm, we sell a dehydrator pan or, or a jerky pan with a rack you put in your oven. You're supposed to crack the oven. I can tell you, it's a cheap way to make jerky. Yeah, you can do it, but 90% of the time it cooks it. Mm-hmm. And cooked meat is different. It's not the same as cured meat. So you really want to cure it. That's why even, you know, even like a Traeger or something like that, it's really hard for a Traeger to hold that temperature that low at 160. They're almost always really want to be at that low 200s. You get above 180 and you're going to cooked and versus cured. So, you know, I, I like Traegers. I like the flavors that you can do with them, but you're going to get different results. And that's where it gets crumbly is usually when you overcook them. Gotcha. I want to take a, a step back too and dive into the cure because there are guys that I, I grew up using cure. I grew up working with it at the turkey farm and actually using it as a tool to make our own jerky, to make our own summer sausage, all these different things domestically. So the the appeal of it, like it, it as a tool, is a wonderful mechanism. And there's now two other camps that are a, I don't, I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to add too much and have it go toxic on me. And then there's the other camp that is, Oh my gosh, this stuff is worse than nuclear waste. Like you should never ingest this stuff. Like that. It's this whole, like it's made in some lab someplace. We've been using a nitrate or some form of that for almost as long as people have been having meat I mean, saltpeter comes right out of the ground, and that's yeah. been, that was the agent there. And, I mean, granted, if you have too much of that, yeah, it's not good for you. We've come along with this, you know, people are like, oh, well, use the carrot uh, nitrite. You know, well, you just flipped a few vowels around. It's the, still the same stuff. The nitrite is going to react like the nitrate. And now here we have a shelf-stable, basically pink salt 
that is commercially available. You can pick it up anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great tool. And it sounds like you're saying the same thing. Yeah. And, and like we come prepackaged. So we sell our, our jerky spices in like two pound packs. So it's pre-measured for you. You just, you know, Hey, I got four pounds, grab two packages, turn them off and use them. But yeah, you're familiar with a prog cure or something like that. That's, you know, that's your, you know, everything we do is nitrates. So yeah, nitrates will work just fine. But really what you're talking about are salts. Yeah. So yeah, it's like any salt use too much of it. You know, eat six pounds of jerky can have a problem. Uh, you know, just, it's too much salt in your system, but like everything in moderation, it's fine. Um, but you're balancing out the idea of, you know, when you're drying meat and you have bacteria and you're doing it at 160 degrees, um, yeah, actually you can get to pasteurization at 160 degrees. The problem is you're not getting there until you get all the way through the meat. So, you know, you may not be pasteurizing where you need to, um, you know, that's not the whole piece of meat is, is like that, but once you're done with the pasteurization, if you know, there's just normal bacteria within the air. So you you have something that basically bacteria will love to eat. So you just, in my book, at least it's better to be safe. I do, I've developed a canner myself. I know a lot about canning and food, pres- oh, food preservation is kind of my life, right? So I've learned a lot about this. So basically salt packing or salt curing is a really, really good way of doing it. But you know, salt, like anything, can be damaging to you, especially in excess. Most people don't eat jerky like that. So, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, there's more of that in a hot dog than there is going to be in jerky. Um, and as long as you're okay with that, then you're fine with that. But I, I'm of the camp. I'd just rather not die. Um, you know, just make sure the food is safe. Um, but that's why that cleanliness aspect of it is so important. And if you're not going to use cures, you know, the, the, you could do it. It just has to be refrigerated the whole time or freezer. You know, the, a lot of people don't know if you put something in a freezer that will help kill bacteria as well. Um, you know, they just can't survive in a deep freeze. And I don't know, have the numbers in my head right now, but basically there's a certain temperature and a certain amount of time that basically will kill it off. And um, if you do fish jerky, that's in our manuals, we talk about that. Like really you're supposed to freeze the fish because there's a lot of bacteria that can happen in fish. That's well, I say dormant, but not active until it can, you know, you throw it on a warm dehydrator for a while. Um, so freezing, it's a really good method for being able to do that. But, you know, really, I don't want to give advice in that shorter period. There's books out there and our manuals talk about how to do that. But, you know, anything in food preservation in general, cleanliness, following the, you know, the, following the actual safety protocols, same with canning, right? There's safety protocols you got to follow. And as long as you do that, you're fine. Um, but it all begins with cleanliness. You know, and that's why I go back to field dressing because that's one of those places you introduce that bacteria. And like, if you gut shot something, that stuff happens. It's just make sure when that happens that you take that extra amount of care, especially on your inner loins. Like that's, you know, those are exposed to that area. You're going to want to make sure you got good, clean water. You're thoroughly washing it. You're making sure that, you know, that's chilled out really quickly. So if that stuff happens, again, it's not the end of the world. It's not like you wrecked everything. Um, where I think people get in more trouble is if it's that warmer fall day, especially in bow season, and they're not finding their kill right away. And it sits out. And if you get a gut shot, and a lot of times this happens because you got a shot, you know, behind the lungs, you get a gut shot um, and you're tracking and you're tracking and maybe you're even bringing it up the next morning. That's when you're finding it. I've been on that type of thing before too. <laughs> if you hunt long enough, you will be. <laughs> yeah. It just, it, it's going to happen. Um, you know, you got to make a call on that too. I've made calls where I'm just like, it wasn't my deer, but I was like, nope. <laughs> I'm like, that's just not safe anymore. 
And again, all of this is fun. And it's a whole different scenario if you're doing it for survival than it is if you're just, it's a choice to be there. And I would always just say like, look, be safe. You know, and, and the other thing is too, if you cook something, you're okay. So if you're going to take it and put it in a skillet at the end of the day and cook it, and as long as you get those temperatures up basically above 180 degrees for enough enough period of time, and you're going to, anything you put on a skillet is going to do that for you if it'll cook it long enough, you're fine. Nothing can survive that. So you're fine. So anytime, you know, I was even in canning, I'm just like, look, you don't have to worry about botulism as long as you're going to cook it. You know, where, where you get in trouble is where, you know, you open something up and you go right from there and start eating it and you haven't cooked it. And, you know, you didn't notice if the can was popped or not. That's where you get yourself in trouble. Uh, but if you cook it, anything you cook, you're fine. You're not, you're not going to hurt yourself. Yeah. Stick to let you're gonna have to find someone that's an expert in prosciutto in capicola, you know, yep. those, those dry salamis. Maybe we're not there quite there yet, but we can cook things. Yeah. And honestly, even, even those, those guys know exactly what they're doing in the very controlled situations. And I tell you what, I haven't had prosciutto before that wasn't really salty, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. so salt your friend, you know I mean? It kills <laughs> a lot of things. I, I do a lot of pickling too. Uh, pickling's a fun one too. If you get into it, like, um, you know, pickling, yeah, I, I, this is sucker season for us. So we do go sucker spearing. We pickle suckers. Um, I do, I, every year I grow my own cucumbers, do dills, do dill pickles and, I know pickling is another area that I really enjoy. And again, my whole life's around food preservation. So um, I've developed these techniques. I'm actually this summer, I'm going to be doing kimchi, which I'm really excited to try Ooh, that. that. I've never done cool. it. It, it. just, I'm getting more into other, you know, other areas beyond my comfort zone and kimchi is one of them, right? I'm like, Hey, look, that's great. I did sauerkraut last year. Uh, I had my, my great uncles, you know, uh, um, shredder and tried that. That's another salt pack, basically. It's really fun. And I'm in Wisconsin, which is a pretty German background. So I had a couple of friends help me and back to beer. I mean, that's the other thing with this stuff. You can easily, you know, I never drink and hunt. I drink after the hunt. And, I, and when you're processing, you drink from the beginning if you want, as long as you're not in the slicer. Yeah, just, <laughs> but, but it's a fun time to do it with friends, right? I mean, you get together, you do the stuff and you're just BSing. I, I like to socialize over having a purpose. Uh, so, you know, I, I find it to just be more fun to do it. That's how my family grew up. You know? So I think a lot of people can identify with that, but go out and have fun with it. I mean, so yeah, like I said, going to do kimchi this year. I'm looking for anything else out there in that food preservation area. What can I get into and try and, and add to my repertoire of what I know how to do? Well, good deal. Um, with that canning, you, you, you know, this is that you're re revolving around that folks are, they're head over heels for canning or they've never experienced it. They've never had that. I have eaten canned venison and I tell you what, like whatever came out of that can, it was a literal, like it just tossed with noodles. It was flipped up for me. It was put on a plate and they said, Nick, give this a try. And I tell you, that was the most tender. It was the most velvety. It, I, I couldn't tell you what cut it was. But, I mean, shanks are a favorite of mine just because you get so much of that added benefit of all that yep. collagen working out. And out of that can, that meat, it must have been a shank. But it was just, I mean, it fell apart in your mouth. You could just slurp it down. Delicious. It's almost always a shank. It's it usually not your better cuts, right? It's, you know, you're usually canning kind of anything that you make into a, ha into a hamburger. But when you can it like that. It actually get again back to being tender and just it's fantastic check out the carry smart canner or the nesco smart canner this is a product that i developed a couple of years ago it's kind of uh it's, it's all electronic it has all the instructions on how to can venison on it 
it's a really cool device that's out there. We sell it on Amazon and the and Fleet Farm, a bunch of retailers around. But that's it does four quarts at a time. And I'll can my venison in there. It's got a recipe on doing canned venison. But again, that you, you do when you can, usually you're cooking while you're canning because you're doing it at high temperatures. Um, so it, you know, it does process that and cook it, but it breaks down the enzymes and makes it a little bit like, that's what I'm saying. Usually you're using a tougher piece because it'll break it down and make it a more tender piece while you can it. And it is a fantastic way of doing it. I, you know, I'll even go in and I'll add like a little cayenne seasoning to it because that cayenne, and I like spicy foods, as you can kind of guess with kimchi. Like I'm like, I like spicy food. So I'll put a little cayenne with it. And then again, uh, in wintertime, I like spicy foods like that because I'll do it just like you said, on noodles like that. And that that cayenne and just open up the capillaries, it makes you warm. And I also take a lot of uh, traditional Finnish saunas. And I just like in the wintertime, when you're that cold, just having food that warms you up, doing those things is is fantastic. The canning, it's just so easy. Kids come home, I throw, I just open it up, throw it, you know, throw it right in the fry pan, warm everything up, uh, do the noodles separately. And I just throw them in, in into the fry pan with the meat, toss them around a little bit. I may throw an onion in there. I love onions and garlic. So I throw that in there, then serve a plate like that. And it is absolutely fantastic. I got a pike uh, on the ice. Uh, first keeper on my tip up, felt really accomplished by it. And my first piece of wild anything. Um, one of my things was this year, especially was to get a pike. My first bite of wild anything happened to be smoked pike. And, you know, I was just a wee little kid, loved it. And that's what I thought I was going to do with um, the pike that I have currently. He's he's in the freezer right now. I mean, the, the flays are in the freezer right now. Got the Y bones out. But uh, you mentioned pickling and a lot of people pickle uh, a northern Yep. Tell me, tell me something a little bit different that you're doing for, say, a fish that you're going to pickle versus versus venison. Well, with, with yeah, and suckers are the same way. So I, I'll only, uh, I only pickle suckers. I don't, yeah, and, and so the, not really much different. You're looking for a, you know, a vinegar solution, and I get my numbers wrong, but I think it's a 15% uh, vinegar solution. Um, you're basically going to be, you know, hot packing it. You're going to be, you know, canning it, hot packing it. And putting in there, I'm not doing much different, but that can't, then you're going to go through the whole canning process, which again, it's, uh, I don't remember the time. It, usually it's at our level. It's like 10 pounds of pressure. I want to say for that, for that, it's like, it's like 25 minutes, but again, there's guides on that. You're a can like that. It's going to break it down. And what it's really going to do is that, you know, no, if you've already removed the Y bone, I actually, tell, I would recommend you don't pickle um, okay. because really the pickling comes in. It really is nice. If you take that, you take that northern and basically chop it up and pickle it like that with the bones still in it. The bones almost disintegrate through, the, through that pickling process. So you can just, when you grab the meat, the meat, the bones just fall right off. And it really takes away the need to do anything with the Y bone. So if you've already gone through the effort of getting that Y bone out, uh, you may as well, you know, may as well fry it up or cook it the other way that you like it because you've gone through the hard part. On pickling, I, I typically, um, I, I just, I pickle it with the Y bone in and everything and do it, it didn't do it that way. Gotcha. And it's, it's just, it's, it's super easy, especially if you don't have a massive Northern, you know, like you know, get some hammer handles and stuff like that, you know, that you're doing yeah, pickling to me is a really good way of doing it. Cause it get really because of pain in the butt, especially towards the tail of the fish, getting all those bones out becomes really tough. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. Well, now I have to break it to my wife that I got to keep going fishing so that I can yeah. get another one to do that. It's my record. <laughs> <laughs> um, with your uh, suckers, or um, have you done smelt as well? You're just going whole fish into that point. Like, it's yeah. – or you, you're not even – I mean, you, you gut it out, but at the same time – Yeah, well, well yeah, I mean, our, our town – I mean, Two Rivers, Wisconsin, I mean, we still have a commercial fishing fleet going out and doing – and we pronounce it schmelt. Uh, they're going schmelting oh. right now. It, 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 there's no H in it, but we still pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they're going out. But we're not getting the runs that we used to. And I've heard that they're on the uptick again, that, that we, you know, they're in a cycle and they're on the uptick. But as a kid, we do dip nets, Coleman lanterns, and, and get them that way. Um, you know, traditionally you always bite the head off the first one. At least you get the new guy to do that. Um, you know, and you, you know, but yeah, you're just basically in, with that. I'm just, I'm just taking the head. And I'm just peeling it off. Um, got, you know, everything comes right out. Just kind of tilt it back and pull it out. Yeah, that's all I do with those. And I'm, I'm eating, there's bones in there. And when you cook them, that's, they're fine. Um, I still, you know, during Lent, I almost always have a couple of smelt fries along the way. So I like it. I personally like it, you know, deep fried like that. And well, like I said, in our town, it's sort of a, it's kind of a big deal here. I mean, everybody has their own recipe and the way they do it. So I don't know. Uh, I haven't done it for years because they haven't ran for so long. The only place I know they're running is like up in Lake Superior. That's like last place I even heard of them running up in the rivers right now. So, um, but we have a little bar around here, basically is across the street from the fishing fleet. So they'll go get like Tupperware containers and bring them over and then we'll, and they'll, they have a broaster. So they dim in the broaster. Always a good time of that. I watched the you know the grandmother at the bar and she's just peeling them off like that by hand. They're not even in there with knives. She's just peeling them apart. That's awesome. That's awesome. I I love that and I hope that you know numbers just kind of you know like that cycle. I hope they start coming back or at least as we're you know I mean shoot we're looking at a lot of changes here in the Great Lakes. I'm hoping that things kind of like turn their turn themselves around that we start really focusing in on these fisheries and hopefully they don't go away. Yeah, I sure hope so because it's a big part of our economy. It's you know big part of our our, our front end. The whole like smelting season was like it was just such a, a community event around us. You know, everybody went and did it. You know, again, you can see Coleman lanterns all the way up. You know, we have rivers everywhere, so we can see them all over the rivers. And you know, it, it was a social time. You could just go. It was almost bar hopping for you know for fishing. And 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 you know, you were just like normal fishing, like. You, know, you don't approach somebody, right? You know, leave them their area to fish. Well, smelt. He was like, "Hey, come on over." You know, I have a latte. It's, you know, it's it was just, it was just easy. You know, so it was. I missed that part of it. And I hope it comes back. Good deal. Well, hey, Rick, or could I call you Chart? Uh, yeah, a lot of people do. So you're, you're welcome. <laughs> so Chart, we have come to the crescendo of our show here, and this is the two dish breakdown. In this two dish breakdown. I'm going to give you a scenario and it's got to use wild game in some aspect. And you're going to tell me the dish kind of what cut and your process that you go through in, in making this. So I hope, I hope you're up for the challenge. Go for it. Good. Um, first one is it's a softball. I'm going to toss it up to you. I want a crowd pleaser. Give me a crowd pleaser meal or even appetizer that you're going to serve at some plate at some event that you're trying to impress that's easy uh bacon wrapped loins uh you know that's you're right that's a softball it's like <laughs> take that take that you know either you know if it's a crowd, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the back straps for a crowd I'm gonna do the inner loins from my house um uh, but yeah I'll do a back strap 
wrap them in bacon. I'll take a, I'll take like a fillet knife and I'll, I'll do a little like insert with that fillet knife and I'll take slit shaved garlic and I'll put, I'll push it right along the knife blade, stick that knife blade in about a quarter inch and take that garlic that you've sliced up and shove that down in there, wrap that in bacon. And that, that when you, when you bake it like that, I bet I'll wrap it in aluminum foil, keep the moisture into it. Um, and then cook it like that. I'm trying to think of the temperature. I usually do that. I usually do that like a really high temperature, like 450 for like five minutes and then back it down to like uh, 300 degrees for another, it depends on the size of the loin, right, but for like right. another 15, 20 minutes, check, you know, check it with a meat thermometer and the, in, and the inside. Um, I always tend to remember, you know, anytime you're doing that to you know, take it off of the early side, because it'll continue cooking, especially if you've got it wrapped in aluminum foil, but it gets that bacon nice and crispy on the outside. That bacon adds that bacon flavor. I like an applewood bacon. New skis is the best. I mean, I, I'm not even being biased here. Just get new skis <laughs> bacon, wrap it up on that thing. That's my crowd. And I'll slice it uh, maybe about three eighths of an inch thick and I'll slice it like that. And then uh, I just, I'll have like a little bit of uh, like just slightly toasted French bread, have it on that. And I just think that is absolutely fantastic. And you'll get, the, it'll, no matter how much you have on the table, that will just be gone. And so if you do both back straps and for a presentation, I'll do a, just a wooden board like that. I'll slice them like that. Have the French bread laid out, you know, right behind it. And uh, if you want, you throw a little horseradish sauce on the side for folks that want that. Um, but that's, to me, that's the crowd pleaser. That's the one that looks, it's really easy to do. Crowd pleaser, and, you know, nobody can say no to bacon. Uh, bacon and garlic makes it better. Uh, just and, and only seasonings I do are salt and pepper. Um, salt and pepper on something like that is absolutely, that's, that, that's my go-to. Awesome. Oh, yeah. You had me at horseradish. Put a little bit of that on there and then slapping on that that backstrap. My yeah, my my German heritage is all of a sudden flaring up. <laughs> That's good. I love that. Seedier the mustard, the better to top it off as well. Um, this one, I'm gonna go sentimental. And I know it's your grandma's recipe, but it really I I just the passion that you put into it, and you even said this this would be my last meal. And then that is one of my questions that I have that, you know what, for some odd reason, uh, Chard, we're, you're on death row and you get one, one last meal. I want you to, I want you to walk us through potato sausage. Would you be willing to do that with, with us? Yeah, I, I would. I actually, I, I honestly don't have the, the actual ratio or recipe with me and I don't have it memorized. Um, so I can't do that for you. I can tell you just because I'm, I got to plug my products too. I do, I do a pull of sausage and an Italian seasoning that really are really, really good um, for mass, you know, where you buy the packets from us, um, especially our Italian and fennel seed to me is like the key to good sausage. I love fennel seed. And it's like, I don't, I don't use fennel seed in anything else except for sausage and the right amount really pops on the flavor that and sage. I like sage. I don't like to, again, sage is one of those things you can go over the top with a little bit of sage in it. The, the trick of the trade, in my opinion, and if, especially if you're doing it yourself, I'll, I'll give you a couple pieces of advice here. Um, if you're going to make your own sausage, you, you know, go to the store, whether it's us or another competitor of ours, you're going to buy the casings. You're going to take a look and you see collagen casings, you're going to see natural casings. Um, collagen is a man-made casing, nothing wrong with it. it it's dry packed. It looks, looks really clean. It, I, you know, I can't even describe it on a podcast, but basically it looks really clean on the shelf. 
And then next to it will be the salt pack, salt brine, natural casings, which are intestines that look absolutely disgusting and even worse when you open them up, how they smell. And let me just tell you, you'll never want anything but that nasty smelling intestinal casing because you wash it out, you clean it up. It is the flavor that you want. And like so much stuff you do yourself, it's like, wow, that's really gross. It is, but that's because of what it is. But trust me, that is the way to go. Natural casings have the right texture to them. Again, you got to wash them out, get that salt brine out of it, get, and just let them soak in a bowl. They'll open up and then, you know, dump the water out, put more water in, soak it. Let them, you know, I like to do it at, look, at least a couple hours ahead of time and get that salt solution out of it. But once you do that, you definitely want to, you want that natural casing um, and you feed it on the stuffer like that. You and Anytime you're doing sausage, it takes a biggest sausage takes a little bit of skill because you got to understand how much pressure to put on the casings. Because if you do too much, you split the casing, not enough, it's loose pack and it kind of gets a lot of air bubbles in it. And you have to try to not laugh at every innuendo in the whole process. (laughs) Making sausage is my favorite. I love it because of all the jokes. I can't help but laugh when I do it. So I'm like, really? Yeah, it is. Maybe that's why my grandmother was at the other end, just to be that boy's back, you know. But really, honestly, like that to me, that, you know, getting a good sausage. And if, you know, if you get that German heritage, you know, like they're really, the really the pinnacle is sausage. Like there's a lot that goes into it, a lot you can do with it. And then, you know, you can dry cure summer sausages are a lot of fun stuff you can do with summer sausages are just awesome. I like to smoke mine afterwards. You can get a high temperature cheese and incorporate it into it. That's Um, a key too. Fun too. Yeah. That's just a great time. And again, it just, you can make it yours. That was, I said in the beginning, as we come back to this, our tagline at Char is make it yours. So the whole idea is that like, look, this is my art creation. This is, you know, yeah, the hunting, everything I do is for a, you know, for a bigger purpose. And I like to share that with my friends. I always have. Like you're talking about the venison dinner we might do or how many, you know, get together with our friends and you might bring your pickled Northern. I bring my back straps. I, you know, we cook it up and we share it. And, you know, I don't do artwork. I do food. And I, I see that becoming, even back when we first started Chard, I was seeing this, you get the, you know, get the, the, the chefs who were coming out and Bobby Flay and they're doing these things. You're like, yeah, this is the stuff we've been doing for years. And this is a way of expressing to others and sharing what we've gone on. Again, hunting a lot of times is a lone sport, but the sharing of the food afterwards is the communal thing. That part to me is a lot of fun. And it's a way for me to show off like, hey, this is how much I care about you. I don't want to sit down with you and tell you about how much I care about you every single day. So I do that through doing stuff like this, where I'm like, look, I care enough about you that I went through the trouble of doing all this. I make my own jam. I make my own maple syrup. I'm like, I do these things so I can sit down with you and share my work with you because you're important enough to me to do that with. And that's, yeah, I'd much prefer to do that with somebody than sit there and talk about how much I love them. Uh, I'd rather show them with that. And to me, that's what a lot of this stuff is about is sharing that time with others, expressing yourself as far as what you enjoy doing, the creativity you have in a very meaningful way for you and your family and your friends. So that kind of wraps up what we do here at our company and, and what's important to me in my life. Rick Carey, cheers. That was yeah. an epic little rant right there. I love that. Incredible. <laughs> Thanks, Incredible. Yeah. I wanted to leave you time too, because yeah, now that we got everybody fired up, we want to process our deer. We want to cut it up. We want to have the equipment 
uh, at our disposal. We want to, I mean, we just got done talking to the guy who makes all this stuff. Where, where do we now go? How do we get in touch with you? How do we get in touch with Chard to get us the grinder, to get us the sausage stuffer? I know that's one thing I am definitely in high demand needing. Where do we find this? Sure. You can go to our website, chardproducts.com. That's C-H-A-R-D products, all in word.com. You can also go to Nesco.com. That's that that's uh, another brand we have, the Nesco Roaster, if you're familiar with it. Um, if you ever gone to a church potluck, you've seen them. Yep. Uh, but basically, either of those sites will have a lot of our products. The Nesco site will have a link to the other ones. The chart products will have you know all of our products on there. It'll also have a link to the different retailers and carrier products. Uh, you know, just a couple that come to mind. Um, you, you're looking at Gander Outdoors. You're looking at uh, Mills Fleet Farm. Uh, I'm sorry, just Fleet Farm. Uh, Blaine's uh, Menards carries our products as well. Any major outdoor retailer, whether it be Bass Pro or Cabela's, carries some of our products. So you can find them at any major retailer. But if you just want to do some research, go to chartproducts.com. From there, you can find a retailer that might be near you. But we have recipes on there. And I'll have to get my grandmother's potato sausage recipe on there. It really would be a nice idea to share that. But go there and take a look at the products. And there, we may have products in there you didn't even think existed. One of the things we sell is a meat tenderizer that... You know, again, I kind of grew up with one of these metal meat tenderizers, but a little quick recipe, put your seasoning on your meat about half inch or three quarters inch thick, run it through a marinator, and it, it actually takes that seasoning and, and, and embeds it within the meat. It's an instant marinating process. It's really slick and easy to do. We sell that uh, as well. You look at our, I, I had designed a hamburger press a few years ago that really um, solves a lot of problems with hamburger presses. If you ever notice, hamburger presses are the exact same size as a bun. But if you've ever made a hamburger, they shrink when you make oh, them. Yeah. So it was like, why didn't anybody ever come up with one that's 25% bigger? Well, we, we did. <laughs> and take a look at that. We sell those products out there too. And just know when you go on there, um, it's, it, it's made by guys who basically have gone through it and have, have said, hey, I can do this better. And uh, you know, let us know what you think. We also have feedback on there. If you like it or have suggestions, we're always reviewing that stuff and love those comments. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Rick, hold on for just a second. I'm going to let our, our listeners on out. Folks, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I've had. That we are out here, yeah, putting the effort into all the food plot. We've gone into tuning our arrows. We've gone into shooting all summer. We've now watched our deer. And the moment of truth is before us. Let's make that good shot and then continue to run the race as if we want to win and take this full circle to go into that animal hang it up like we want to very clean and give our loved ones that we want to express how much that we love them to the, the work and effort that we put into this animal and that we make amazing food out of it whether it's food we share with friends extended out from us or whether it's friends that are in our or excuse me family in our inner circle that we want to be able to share with yeah to have some products to do that this would be the place to go but whatever you end up using, always make sure that that knife is sharp.